Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 10:50 a.m., 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California, and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. All right, a pleasant good evening. Thanks for joining us on the Water Zone. I'm Rob Starr, along with Mister, the the Grandmaster of Hydraulics, Mister Chris Davies. Chris, how are you doing today? Hey, thank you very much, uh, Rob. I'm doing great. Um, just want to tell the listeners what a great show we got today. A very special guest on the second half, but not outclassed by our first guest, who is uh, our weekly guest, uh, Chris Austin from Maven's Notebook, right? Yes. So welcome, Chris. Hey, how you doing, everybody? We're doing good. Like I told you, we're, we're trying to find high-class people to come in after you. It's hard to get. We we struggle every week to, to try to locate people, but we did. We did. I got somebody really good, and the subject is really going to be interesting, war and water. Yeah. So yeah, Peter in- Peter Glick, he's he's a, one of a very respected voice in the water world. Yeah, you know, when I started my first water website, which was almost 15 years ago, uh, 15 years ago on Sunday, the 17th to be exact. Um, That was your your 16th birthday, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, And and I I was publishing this website and I didn't know anybody anywhere. And and he he just sent me this email one, one day. It was like, who are you? And I about I about fell out of my seat because I was like, "Wow, you're a rock star." Uh, <laughs> he, but he told me he liked my my work. And and one more Peter Glick thing is um, my favorite uh, Peter Glick quote was he said, "Uncertainty to a scientist is a range of potential outcomes." Uncertainty to the general public is you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I love it. That's awesome. Okay. When we were when we were trying to get him on the show, he said, "Hey, we're going to be on the second half of the show." He said, "Who's on the first half of the show?" We said, "Chris Austin from Maven's Notebook." He said, "How the heck do I follow that?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's great. So it's it's going to be a great show. So. So what is, what, what is new in the world of water in California? I know there's lots of things going on. I mean, we, I read your blog every day. Uh, I know I hear we're getting a, a typhoon coming in the Pacific. Well, it's pushing up some wet weather uh, into the, the northern part of the state. Um, and we're actually getting precipitation today. I, I'm kind of impressed because the last couple times they, they've said these storms are going to blow through. and and they come through and they've done hardly nothing. But we've actually had a little bit of rain today here in in Chico. And um, there's storm snow up in the mountains. They actually had chain controls at one point uh, a couple days ago. And uh, some more storms and more wet weather ahead. So, I mean, this is all good. Uh, this is adding to our reservoir storage, and uh, you know we need all the the rain and snow we can get. Uh, but but it's not gonna make everything, you know, make all our drought ro- woes go away. Uh, it's, just, uh, it's it's not that much rain. 
Um, but it is wetting up, you know, the watershed and, and, you know, the vegetation and running into the reservoirs. And we surely, surely, surely need it. Um, but it's still going to be a very, a very, very hard year. So hard summer coming up. Uh, but not an awesome April. So isn't, isn't the atmospheric rivers growing? They're starting to intensify. Yeah, um, they are, but they also seem to be uh, moving north. Uh, again, you know, uh, it, this happened, I believe, uh, in years past, and it happened again uh, this year really bad. Uh, I mean, they just got hammered up in Oregon and Washington and British Columbia. I mean, massive flooding up there. Because they usually didn't get those kinds of storms, but they got hammered by atmospheric rivers that, you know, were the ones that used to flow to us. Uh, when I took physical geography in college, it was uh, the most fascinating class, uh, one of my all-time favorites. But the chapter that we had on weather was really, really hard to understand. Um, but it, you know, to make everything really super simple, it has to do with ocean temperatures and ocean currents and the jet stream. And, you know, as, as the ocean warms, it, it changes things, you know, and the jet stream goes different places and, uh, you know, we're seeing change. So, uh, hopefully we'll get some of those atmospheric rivers back, you know, coming our way again, but I, who knows when that will happen. It's a silly question, but do you think the continents will break up like they did millions of years ago and move plate, move countries, other places? You know, we tend to think of our earth as, you know, like it's, that it's, it's, it's all firm the way it is, you know, that it's, that mountain will always be there. Um, I, I think geology is a little bit more dynamic than that, although a lot of times these things move on scales that are beyond our lifetime. Like right. the San Andreas Fault is creeping northward northward and one of these days you know if we had stayed in santa clarita we would have been you know theoretically looking at uh you know san francisco across the bay but i mean we're talking you know hundreds thousands of years from now as that right. as that moves so you know but yeah you know we you never know with geology you know volcanoes you know yeah. volcanoes can really change uh, of the the landscape and you know earthquakes. Uh, it's interesting thinking about that because you know when you when you see they got volcanoes in the ocean and there's tons of magma under that and and it's, you know it's not solid stuff. You know, unlike no. unlike I I heard unlike I heard the moon somebody says was hollow, <laughs> but I but well, I've we, never been there. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I'm not sure we, I'm not sure we know that either. I thought it was made of cheese, so you know, hey. <laughs> <laughs>
Me too. I'm the cheese. I'm a cheese theory supporter. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and the earth is With flat, cheese. right? The earth is, the flat. Earth is yeah. flat. So uh, another interesting article that was out today that I thought was interesting was the story about um, hunting. And, you know, can can hunting survive in California? Uh, and, you know, it, it's interesting to really uh, step back from how you may feel about hunting, you know, as a whole. Uh, I know I have friends that have described it as, you know, people going out and shooting Bambi. Uh, but, you know, hunting... Uh, is people that hunt, they, you know, they go to these hunting clubs and they pay a lot of money. Or if they're out, you know, on public lands hunting, they pay a lot of money for these uh, tags to be able to hunt whatever animal they're going to hunt. And uh, those fees actually pay for a lot of land management. Um, you know, and if you're in a duck club uh, and you're paying duck club fees, uh, you know, that, that, uh, duck club is maintaining wetlands and, you know, supporting the population of ducks. And, you know, if we were to say that there's going to be no more hunting, it would be, a, a it would be quite a problem. We'd have to figure out how to pay for, uh, the land to be managed and to have the people to manage it, you know, too. So, Hey, so Chris, what uh, do you have an event coming up on um, a panel discussion coming up on Monday? I I sure do, and it's a fun one. Um, Tell us about it. Well, like I said at the beginning of the show, um, on Sunday it's my 15 years of uh, uh, doing uh, publishing water news websites. I guess is the easiest way to put it. This thing that I do. And so on Monday from 12 to 1, I am uh, having a little uh, online party, so to speak. I've invited uh, some of my uh, Water News colleagues together, and we're going to have a panel discussion and just talk about, uh, you know, what it's like, what we do, and, you know, our thoughts on certain things. We're still working out the questions. It's not going to be a, the kind of thing where people are going to stand up and, you know, pay tribute to me. It's, it's going to be more of a panel discussion uh, where we're going to just talk about some things and, and have some fun. So, and where, where do they go to hear that? Um, if you go onto the front page, uh, uh, there's a little green box under Featured Events, and it says uh, Office Hours. If you click on that, then it'll go to a page, and you can uh, you can register there. Uh, it's also on Eventbrite. So if you uh, type into Eventbrite and just search Maven's Notebook, then you'll see, uh, you know, I have an event page there, and so you'll see the 15-year panel discussion. And then also, you know, the week after that, we're going to be discussing California water futures. So yeah. the mysterious California water futures. So it's a, so should be some good times. Yeah. We'll, we'll make sure we keep promoting that. 
Yeah. So I'll, I'll put I'll put it in the write up uh, for the uh, for the podcast when it goes to podcast. I'll make sure that's in there. So also, I was reading about the state water board uh, shows that we had a 0.5 percent reduction in water use, but also that water use rises with income as well. So I guess the people with money don't care, and they'll just spend more money to use more water. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and I'm not sure if it's, and, and even the staff said they're not sure that it's that quite the, it's quite that straight ahead. Uh, um, yeah, people, they they did. Well, first of all, the first part of that is, yeah, uh, we're not, we're, we're not as uh, a population in the state, you know, as a whole, we're not saving a lot of water. Um, I think the the conservation message is uh, just not getting a lot of airplay, I guess. Um, and the state officials were even out a few weeks ago, you know, going out to visit places and were uh, and and it hardly got any write up in the news, so it was kind of interesting. So, do you think the people that put in smart irrigation and water smart features in their home, you know, with the toilets and the showers and all of that, and they reduce their water usage, say, 25 to 30% already, and, and now they're getting squeezed to do more. I mean, it's harder and harder and harder to keep, once you attain that kind of level, to keep, you know, it, and it gets really costly trying to get to that level. Well, yeah, and, um, you know, and, and, that's one thing that you do when people, you know, get water efficient appliances. But but probably more importantly, when they uh, switch over their landscaping to a lower water use landscape, it, these things tend to do what we call hardened demand, right. and uh, and and so that means that there's harder for for that household then to save you know, to, to cut back even more. So that's part of what the new uh, water conservation regulations that was passed back in Jerry Brown's day and is just about uh, ready to be launched. Um, that's what it's getting at, where the idea is that they're going to determine a water budget for every home it sounds like a lot of work, but they've done this in some areas already. And they've, they've done, looked at the landscape uh, from the satellites. They measure your landscape. Um, they, they, you know, find out how many people in your household. And they come up with a water use budget that's split between indoor and outdoor. And... That gives the that sort of the target where you know that that household needs to be. So the idea is that in in a drought, you know, it's going to be more on your water budget, not not just this across the board, uh, you know, cut. That, that's kind of what they're getting at with that. Do, do you think they're going to? I know in some places they have. What I'm going to ask you. But do you think California is going to ever think about having a dual meters, one for indoors and one for outdoors? Um, you know, they they might, but I don't know if you, we're going to see those on, in households 
uh, I mean, there's just a lot of households that aren't set up that way right. um, now. And and so I, I don't, if they put that in new home construction, I'm not sure that's really going to make much of a difference because so there's so much house that's already, you know, houses already built. But they definitely have that for, you know, institutional commercial landscape. Uh, they've already have that because they they've actually paid a lot of attention to you know the universities and the schools and the big campuses where there's a lot of grass. They've they've spent some time there already, you know, with regulations split things. The, I think the the next big move though is to somehow figure out uh, water use in multifamily dwellings like apartments. Yeah. Because a lot of those, you know, they just don't know. Well, I'm on, I'm on the NAHB water test committee, and now it's a big discussion we've been having for the last, excuse me, for the last five years. Um, you know, how, how can that be enforced? Because, you know, nobody knows who's using X amount of water. It just goes to one meter. And somebody can, you know, run showers for... 30 minutes and another person can do it in two minutes, but you don't know who that is, but then everybody has to share in the bill. I mean, that's built into the, the fee. Yeah. So I, that's I the next step, I think. Yeah. It will be for that. What, what else is hey, up? Uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, Rob, what, uh, ask Chris, what the, what's the latest on the drought front? I mean, just, uh, Got to tell you, getting off the freeway here today, coming home, going up Monte Vista, the major northwest thoroughfare here, signs in the street median <clears throat> saying that the city is going to begin water uh, uh, water restrictions on um, street median, and and I'm assuming other stuff. I was going fast and I couldn't didn't have a chance to read all of it, but uh, you know, do you do you see? I mean, I've read predictions of statewide restrictions coming in place, you know, coming in place, 40 million people here in this state that could affect. Uh, anything new on that front from your perspective? Well, um, they're talking this week at Metropolitan about what uh, they're going to do. And Metropolitan is the water wholesaler for almost the entirety of Southern California um, or Los Angeles and, and surrounding counties, I guess. Um, not not the only one, but the the large, you know, the majority of, of people. And uh, Metropolitan gets their water from uh, two places. They have, they have water that comes in from the Colorado River to the east, and um, or from the east and from the state water project, which comes down to the north. And the way metropolitan system is set up is that a state, the state water project kind of feeds the northern part of L.A. County and the Colorado River does sort of the eastern and southern part of metropolitan service area. So the low... Uh, allocation on the state water project, um, it, it's a it's a bit of a challenge because there's not much water coming in from the north, right? And I don't think, I mean, they, they have built a lot of infrastructure to move water 
around to get more Colorado River water to other parts of the of the city. But I don't think uh, they've gotten as far, let's say, west as the Las Virginas uh, Municipal Water District, which is which is in Calabasas. So they're kind of going to have to impose some water restrictions um, on those areas. And Las Virginas Municipal Water District has already uh, come out with some very tough uh, watering um, water restrictions because they don't have any groundwater. They just have metropolitan water. And like I said, they're at the top of the system. And it's going to be very difficult to get water over there. Um, so it's going to be some challenging times. Uh, it, it's already locally happening here. I mean, there are no water restrictions here in the San Gabriel Valley, northern part of San Gabriel Valley, where I live. But the city has already sent out a letter that says, hey, regardless of the fact that there are no current water restrictions, the city is considering, you know, blah, 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 dot, dot, dot. So um, uh, uh, lots of, if, if, if another drought becomes or deepens and becomes an issue here, uh, more fodder for the water zone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and, you know, we're not, I, I don't, I'm, I'm just not kind of optimistic that we're going to get a, uh, any relief on this drought anytime soon you know in australia they kind of kept uh they kind of had the same you know australia is very similar to california because it's also a mediterranean climate you know so and and so they sort of had the same drought cycles you know a drought might last you know kind of three, four years, and, and believe me, drought's not never been this deep or this hot with temperatures, but, you know, they had the same thing, and then they got into their drought, and about year six, they kind of figured out, oh, you know, this drought thing maybe is not going away, and it actually turned out to be a 10-year drought uh, that ended in a lot of flooding, uh, you know, in a deluge and a lot of flooding, uh, you know, so. I remember, yeah. Yeah, we we had some people on from uh, from Australia during during that last drought they had, and it was pretty harsh from what they were saying. I mean, really, really harsh. Yeah, where they, where they were out of water. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, we we're looking at some tough times uh, in San Jose. They have, uh, you know, their main reservoir. They had to do seismic retrofit, so they had to drain it last year. So they have very little water in in local area storage, and uh, they have a, actually, you know, a whole bunch of different ways to get water, like the both Central Valley Project and State Water Project. But um, those systems aren't delivering any water this year, so they don't have much storage. They just have groundwater and what little water might come, you know, for health and safety needs. But it's going to be very tough in San Jose, very tough this year. So any any yeah. hopes for the future with the little unicorns? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need those unicorns that pour water out of their horns to come down to the 
Central Valley and fill up all of our reservoirs, but uh, haven't been able to locate them. Well, I bet a lot of farmers right now has got a bunch of choices to think hard about what they're going to do if the drought continues. And, and uh, I feel I feel bad for that. I feel bad for the country and our state because we need we need agriculture and we need water. So it's going to be a tough, 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 tough decision. Yeah, it's not it's not a good year to be a farmer. Uh, but you know, make people should not <laughs> make the mistake of thinking that the farmer is expendable. I mean, the reason why we can all live in the cities and we don't have to be out tending our own fields is because they we have the farmers and they're doing that for us, and uh, that's our food supply uh, that they're doing there. You know, food food doesn't just come from the grocery store. You know. Uh, it's out there in the fields, and we need those guys Absolutely. and and girls. Yeah, that's true. Well, Chris, wow. I want to wish you a, a happy 15th anniversary, and good luck on your panel discussion this weekend. And uh, we look forward to having you next week as, as well, as always. And uh, the people who want to listen to you more about water news in California, please go to mavensnotebook.com. Become a subscriber, even become a sponsor. It's a great place to get your water news every single day. It's the latest and greatest and stuff behind the scenes. And you get it every morning when you turn your PC on or any other way. So, Chris, thank you very much, and we will be with you next week. All right. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Have a great week, Chris. And you a happy too. Easter. Happy Easter. Anyway, we're going to take a little break, and we'll be back with a featured guest, so stick around. The subject is really interesting, so we'll be back in just a few moments. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM. They love you. They love you not. They love you. Satisfying your customers, it's a full-time job. Want an easy way to make them happy? Try having your ornamentals delivered straight to the job site with Nursery Direct. Could save you and your clients a pretty peony. Think about it, instead of driving to the nearest nursery, picking up the order, and then driving to the job site, the crew's able to begin work right away. That cuts time and labor. Savings you can pass on to your customers, and you can get your plants delivered direct, even if you don't have a nursery branch in your area. Here's another quick tip. Keep a substitutions list on standby for every project so your team knows what to do in case a plant isn't in stock because there's nothing customers appreciate more than a project that finishes on time and on budget. They love you. They really love you. Aww. If you knew there was a pipe cement that works better than the one you're currently using, is better for you and the environment, and costs the same or less, would you buy it? Well, no-brainer, right? Weldon, the trusted leader in solvent cements for over 60 years, is pleased to introduce a new line of solvent cements that does all that. Introducing the Eco-Series line of solvent cements for PVC piping systems. Not only does it work great and set fast, it also has 30% lower solvent emissions and less smelly fumes. A better workplace environment when you're installing pipes. But don't just take our word for it. Eco-Series products are the only solvent cements that are Green Seal certified for environmental innovation for effective performance, improved working conditions, and for use with potable water. 
Now available in a medium-bodied, fast-setting blue formula, 905 Eco, and a regular-bodied, fast-setting clear formula, 900 Eco. Pick up a can today from your local distributor and see, smell, and feel the difference, just like Joe Sweat, president of Sunrise Irrigation, did. He said, after using Weldon's 905 Eco, we immediately noticed the application was smooth and there was noticeably less odor than other blue solvent cements on the market. The guys love it. To learn more about eco-solvent cements from Weldon, visit the website at www.weldon.com or call the technical service hotline at 877-477-8327. That's 877-477-8327. Miss your favorite show? Download the podcast at kcaaradio.com. Welcome to the second half of the Water Zone with Rob and Chris, and hope everybody's having a good uh, good day. And tomorrow is Good Friday, and Sunday is Easter, so hopefully all of you will go on a nice Easter egg hunt and get your favorite chocolate bunnies and have a good time with your families. Anyway, uh, we have a special guest, actually two tonight, and the uh, the people are Travis Loop and a gentleman named Peter Glick from the Pacific Institute, and he has a very interesting topic that they're going to talk about, and it's called Water and War and how much that plays a lot together and what it does. So let's take a listen to, uh, to Travis and, uh, and Peter. It's pretty The relationship between water and conflict has a long history. Sometimes a fight arises over water resources. Other times, water is used as a weapon during war. In other cases, water is collateral damage. The history is detailed in the Water and Conflict chronology and discussed in this episode with Peter Glick. President Emeritus and a Senior Fellow at the Pacific Institute. Peter also talks about examples from the chronology, such as the first entry from 2400 BC in Mesopotamia, the destruction of a water system in New York City during the Revolutionary War, and the involvement of water in the current invasion of Ukraine. Very happy to be joined for this episode by Peter Glick. He is President Emeritus and a Senior Fellow at the Pacific Institute. Peter, thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me on. Yeah, I'm overdue in having you on here. Uh, You really have so much water knowledge and perspective to bring. I I should have done this a while ago, but glad we're on now. Um, Unfortunately, the topic that that has us uh, on this podcast together is about conflict and war and its intersection with water. A lot of things to dive into on that front, but I know you at the Pacific Institute have just updated your water conflict chronology. What is that and how is it intended to be used? Sure. So just to back up for a second, as you know, The Pacific Institute has worked on water for a long time. The Institute was founded in 1987. Uh, We deal with freshwater issues worldwide, uh, climate change, access to safe water, the human right to water, uh, all all sorts of aspects of water. But one of the things we've also been doing, again, since the beginning pretty much, is looking at the ways that freshwater and conflict are related. Uh, We started really, I started initially looking at environmental security issues, the way the environment and security and international politics were related. And of course, given my interest in water, that segued pretty quickly into a focus on water-related conflicts. And the water conflict chronology is one piece of what we do. It's basically an open source database of 
all the history, the long history of what we know about water and violence. And it goes back, as, as perhaps you know, it goes back more than 4,000 years to the earliest water conflicts in recorded history in ancient Mesopotamia. And the bad news, of course, is it goes up until basically literally last week. Mm. Yeah, uh, some different ways to go with this. Let's let's go with that history aspect a little bit first, uh, and then we can get up to the future, because I know one of the key points of, of your update is there's a growing threat of conflict around water resources. But let's let's take that that journey in time and history. Could you kind of give an overview of, of some of the kind of key examples or, or notable conflicts throughout the past 4,000 years where, where water's been at the crux? Sure. So uh, again, let me back up for a second and, and be a little more explicit in that the chronology uh, categorizes water conflicts in three different ways. Mm. Uh, we think about water as a trigger of conflict, which is sort of the common thing that people think about. It's, I want your water or control of water or disputes over really who is uh, allocating and managing water resources. Uh, so water is a trigger. The second category is water as a weapon, where water or water systems are actually used as weapons during conflicts that start for other reasons. There are conflicts that are you know, associated with whatever, economic, political, ethnic disputes, uh, whatever causes violence. And of course, unfortunately, there are many causes of violence, but where water is used as a weapon. And the third category is where water or water systems are casualties of conflict, targets of conflict. Uh, again, conflicts that may start for completely other reasons, but where water or water systems are attacked during conflicts. And if we go back and look at the chronology, the very first entry is a water war. It's actually really one of the few water wars uh, between the ancient Mesopotamian cities of Uma and Lagash, between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, in 2400 BC, and it, it's written about, literally carved into stone on marble stelas that were recovered by archeologists that describe a dispute between these two ancient cities over access to irrigation water. Uh, and that war actually went on for a hundred years between these two cities. Uh, but it's, it's probably the best example of the use of water as a trigger uh, and ultimately also a casualty of conflict. Mm. And, you know, you also mentioned these, these categories. Obviously, there's been times when drought, right, has, has been a, a spark of conflict. When there's drought, that creates a lot of strain on a, on a population, on a country, on an on a area. Um, and that, that can lead to all kinds of, kinds of situations and consequences, for sure. Um, how can water be used during a conflict? I think you kind of mentioned a, a little bit about it, but what are what are some of the ways that it's actually weaponized, as you said? So water used as a weapon or water systems used as a weapon, again, unfortunately has a fairly long, long history. Uh, there are examples from the ancient times of poisoning wells of your opponents uh, to, to, as, a, as the weapon used during war. Uh, more recently in, again, the Middle East, uh, in Syria and Iraq, again, on the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, some of the very big dams that have been built there were attacked by the Islamic State, taken over by the Islamic State around 20 in the 2014 era to 2018 era. Uh, and then that water was either released from those dams to flood downstream communities 
as a weapon or was withheld from communities as a weapon. Uh, so withholding water, using water uh, as, a, as, as a flood weapon are again, examples from the chronology. Mm. And I think that third category, it was about the impact that, that conflict and war can have on water resources, whether that's you know nature itself or on water infrastructure. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so even when water isn't used as a weapon, water systems are often targeted during conflicts. Uh, the Allied forces in World War II bombed some German dams. Uh, the U.S. bombed irrigation systems in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Uh, in Yemen, in the big uh, conflict that's been going on there for really almost a decade now, uh, Saudi forces and allied forces associated with Saudi Arabia have bombed Yemen's civilian water infrastructure. Uh, there are lots of examples, again, unfortunately, where civilian water systems, because of their value, have been attacked during conflicts. Uh, I, I would note it's that's an explicit violation of international law. The Geneva Convention of 1949, the, the Geneva Protocols of 1977 that that set limits on what nations are supposed to do during conflicts, explicitly say you should not be targeting civilian water infrastructure and energy infrastructure as well. But it doesn't seem to have uh, prevented that from happening. Yeah, no, sure. Uh, obviously, and unfortunately, uh, the, the invasion of the Ukraine uh, by Russia is front and center in the news right now. Um, and I've seen a couple different things related to water uh, in Ukraine uh, as, as related to this conflict and war. Um, what are you aware of? Uh, what's going on, whether uh, the impact on water resources there or the use of water you know, as a weapon or, or defense as it might be in this conflict? Yeah, so there have been a number of instances related to the Ukraine and Russia, actually going back a number of years, uh, so really starting... I mean, there's some entries in the chronology that, that go back before this time, but uh, even starting in around 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, uh, which was part of Ukraine at that point, there's a canal that flows from the Dnieper River from the Ukraine to Crimea that supports some of Crimea's agricultural lands, irrigation water. And following the Russian annexation of Crimea, Ukraine cut off that water uh, they blocked the canal that delivered water to Crimea. You know, that entered the category of water being used as a weapon against Russia. Uh, then, most recently, literally a week ago or so, the reports are that Russia bombed that dam as part of their invasion of the Ukraine. They bombed that small dam on that canal to re return the flow, to restore the flow of water to Crimea. Uh, there have also been reports of attacks on uh, civilian water infrastructure, pumping stations and filtration stations in the Ukraine by Russian forces. Uh, there was a, a report not confirmed, and so it's actually not in our chronology, that the Ukraine intentionally flooded some parts of the land north of Kiev to slow down the Russian advance on Kiev. Uh, again, the kinds of examples we see throughout history, but but most recently in this conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Mm. 
Yeah, incredible. And of course, anytime you see like a, a conflict area or a war and you see coverage, it seems like there's always uh, bottled water <laughs> being delivered, right? It's just obviously essential for everything that's going on. Um, what do you just from a bigger picture, what do you think it says that water is so present as a source of conflict and war, as a weapon during these these uh, wars or conflicts, um, and that as a you know collateral damage a lot of times? It says a lot of different things. It says, you know, it says to me that uh, first of all, we're still not managing water resources in a sustainable, equitable fashion. So, for example, backing up for a second to water as a trigger of conflict, a lot of the most recent entries are they're fairly small scale violence. It's a, you know, farmers fighting farmers or farmers protesting the diversion of water away from their lands to supply an urban center uh, and those riots turning violence. I would note just again, to back up for a second, the chronology focuses on violence associated with water. Mm. When we argue about water, those don't make it to the chronology. It's really got to be some, some violent event to make it into the database. But our failure to meet basic human needs for water for everyone on the planet, our failure to manage water, as you mentioned earlier, during droughts and shortages in a sustainable, equitable fashion, those things all contribute to human misery. They contribute to problems with our economies. They contribute to disputes between neighbors about who gets access to this critical resource. And so the failure to manage water sustainably contributes to these kinds of conflicts. It also says that international law is inadequate. Again, I mentioned the Geneva Conventions, and there are other international laws that say you ought to protect civilian infrastructure and water infrastructure, and you should not attack it during during conflicts. But that that's not enforced. The laws are not adequate, and they're not adequately enforced by some sort of international judiciary agreement. The International Criminal Court, the Court of Justice, uh, there are a lot of challenges with that. But with one exception, no cases like this have ever been brought to the international criminal court. And so there are problems with our international system as well. And finally, a lot of the water on the planet is shared by two or more nations. A lot of the entries in the conflict chronology are subnational conflicts. Again, farmer fighting pastoralists or fighting, fighting other farmers or local attacks on water systems. But there are some international disputes over shared water resources because almost every major international river is shared by two or more nations. And many of those international rivers don't have agreements on them. And when there's a lack of an agreement, a treaty about how to allocate or share or manage an international river, the risk of conflict goes up. Uh, and so that's, a, that's another thing I think we need to look at. You mentioned this one exception where uh, a conflict or, or a violation made its way to the international court. Could, could you share that one? Yeah. So, so uh, uh, the former dictator of Sudan, al-Bashir, has been charged with all sorts of human rights abuses and criminal international violations of criminal law and has been brought up before the international criminal courts. His crimes are many. <laughs> One very small piece of that was, and it's in this in this it's in this criminal allegation in front of the criminal courts, uh, is using water as a weapon 
uh, during some of his violations of international law. So it explicitly addresses his attacks on water systems and his use of water to deprive people of access to safe water and sanitation as a violation of international law. Uh, he hasn't been tried yet. I don't know how that'll go. But there are plenty of other examples that ought to be brought to these courts. Sure. Uh, anything, any examples from the United States where you and I are both based uh, in this chronology? Yeah. So, of course, the good news is that that the richer countries of the world that have better water management systems, that, that uh, have better legal systems, that have somewhat less corruption, have fewer of these examples in the database. Um, but there are all sorts of interesting examples in, from the United States and from, from history. So if you go back to the Revolutionary War, this is actually a wonderful story. Um, New York City was trying to figure out how to build an urban water system. And in 1774, 1775, they actually paid someone to build the very first steam-powered water pump to provide water for the city of Manhattan, from, from Manhattan. Uh, it, there had never been a steam-powered pump for water built in the, in the Americas at that point. Uh, it was a new technology, and, and the guy who, who built it actually built it. And it was built and finished sometime around 1776, just when the Revolutionary War was happening. Uh, George Washington's forces had to flee New York City to Long Island to escape the advancing British forces that then occupied New York and the British burned down much of the city, including this very first water system that New York ever had. So that's in there. Uh, there's, there's an example from the, uh, I think the eighties or the nineties or even more recently where the FBI arrested some neo-Nazis for plotting to poison water supplies in the United States. Uh, actually, it may have been just a few years ago. Uh, so, but the FBI arrested them, and that's in the, that's in the database. Uh, and there's a fun example from I think the 1930s, where in a dispute between Arizona and Colorado and uh, California on the Colorado River, Arizona actually commandeered a couple of ferry boats. This was had to do with the building of the Parker Dam, if I remember correctly. And they mounted machine guns. The, the Arizona National Guard mounted machine guns on these ferry boats. And the so-called Arizona Navy sailed up and down the river for a couple of weeks until negotiations, of course, uh, took oh, over. Wow. Oh, some, good, some good examples there. Mentioning the West, it makes me think of, you know, the, the adage about whiskeys for drinking and waters for fighting, right? I mean, that's, uh, right. That, that fits. And I guess that the kind of long-running dispute between Florida and Georgia with water has not risen to the point of physical conflict, uh, just kind of legal, legal battles at this point. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, you know, that's a good way. That's a good example of most of these disputes – are resolved in the courts, certainly in countries like the United States or in Europe, where the institutions are stronger. They're resolved in the courts. There's a dispute. We sue. We, we go to the courts. We, we make laws. We manage the river better. Uh, it's where laws are bad or governments are corrupt or weak or institutions are, are, are inadequate that we see most of these conflicts turn to violence. Sure. Uh, I, I mentioned in the beginning one of the, I think, headlines with the release of this updated version of the water conflict chronology is there's a, a growing threat, a growing concern about conflict around water resources. Uh, why is that so? 
Well, part of the problem is that uh, as we've been maintaining the chronology and as we've been updating the chronology, uh, it's pretty clear that the numbers of simple examples, the entries, have been growing year by year. You know, they're, they go up and down and they go up and down over time, but they've been going up over time. There have been more of these conflicts in recent years than in the past. And, you know, part of that may be uh, a better reporting today if there's a conflict over water you know, my 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 phone buzzes because I've set it up so that I get notified about it uh, and we're keeping better track of these things. But it does seem to be as populations have grown, as competition for water has grown, as our economies have grown, uh, as challenges with shared water resources have grown, that the numbers of violent events are on the increase. Uh, and that's a worrisome that, that that's what makes me worried about the trend. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, lastly, how do you want people to use this resource and document? It's very interesting from a historical perspective, fascinating information. Um, what's the purpose of you all uh, putting this out and updating it? Yeah, so the, the very simply, the goal of this is to understand better how conflicts over freshwater resources may arise and using that knowledge to figure out strategies to reduce the risks of conflicts in the future. Um, our, our goal, of course, worldwide is reduce conflicts over resources and reduce conflicts in general, uh, in, my, in my case, especially over, over water resources. And so understanding the history of the past can help us understand what we really need to do now to reduce the, the future risks, improving international law of wars and enforcing the Geneva Conventions and the existing laws where we already have them negotiating treaties on shared rivers where we don't don't have them. Again, the Tigris and the Euphrates is a good example because, first of all, some of the earliest entries in the chronology come from that region, and some of the most recent come from that region. But it, those are rivers that are shared by Turkey, uh, Syria, and Iraq, and a part of the watershed belongs to Iran, countries that are not friendly in different combinations over different periods of time. And there's no agreement on the Tigris and the Euphrates. There's no agreement about how to share the water resources, how to, how to document and, and share data about flows, uh, how to manage water during droughts. Uh, it's a really good example of a shared international river that is in desperate need of an international agreement. Mm. Um, and then uh, meeting basic human needs for water. We know that we've failed as a globe to meet basic human needs for billions of people it's part of the sustainable development goals to meet basic human needs for water and sanitation by the year 2030 uh, for everyone. Uh, but we look at where low-level disputes about water occur. Uh, violence between farmers and pastoralists in northern Africa have been going on for a long time because water is scarce and it's not properly allocated and everyone doesn't have access all the time. So meeting basic human needs for water and sanitation for everyone, I think would go a long way toward reducing these kinds of conflicts. Mm. So, you know, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it, right? Put put this these lessons out there so we can try to to improve and take a different path going forward. Exactly. Great. Well, Peter, I really appreciate your time and information. Glad I finally had you on the podcast. Fascinating stuff, but thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, that was pretty interesting, Chris. Yeah, like a great historical perspective there, right? Going back to 
you know, almost like biblical times, right? The yeah. Tigers and the Euphrates and, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and that discussion, you know, it's great to have those guys uh, share that podcast with us. And as Chris Austin said earlier, Peter Flick is just a, uh, a terrific um, mind on, uh, on, on water, Topics of, of every kind of nature. We'd like to get we ought to we ought to see if we can get him uh, back on the show just to talk about what he's doing these days. Right, right. You, you know, it's something to think about. You know, our country isn't very secretive, and we we tell the world that our electrical grid is weak, that people yep. can attack it, and the same thing yep. with water. You know, I, water, I yeah. about, you know I I was told by somebody in the FBI once that you could take a battery operated. Uh, uh, what do you call it? The little airplanes that you fly, model airplanes, and load it up with seraphim and go into a, a reservoir and drop some uh, drop some of it in there, and hundreds of thousands of people before you know it can be dead. And and, yeah, and plus vulnerable. with and plus with the the uh, computer age today, you know they can they can corrupt both the the electrical grid and the water grid, and that would be horrendous for us. But yet we we keep telling people that we're weak in that and we shouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of the water, so I don't panic. A lot of the water is tested as as the process it goes through uh, uh, the system before it's actually shipped out. Hey, do you want to make a mention about uh, anything for Earth Day uh, next Friday? Maybe uh, Wineland or the Mayor's Challenge or anything like that? Oh, well, we're going to have the Wineland people on in the next couple of weeks, and it is Earth Day, as you're correct. A couple of people are having, well, a lot of people up in your area, I just got a notice from uh, your water agency, from Claremont, and they're, they're going to be doing some stuff. I, I don't have all the documents in front of me with, with what they're doing, but I will able to do that uh, uh, soon. And uh, But it, it's going to be celebrated pretty big as it always is every year. Yeah, well, next Thursday's show is uh, is the day before Earth Day, so we'll have, uh, we'll have some more information for our listeners then, right? Okay, perfect. Well, we got to get out of here for the NBC News. It's about that time. We have about 30 seconds left. So uh, thanks for everybody listening in. I hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll be with you next week. And remember, the most important thing we want you to do is help keep our planet blue. Planet blue. Good night, everybody. Have a good week. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.1 FM.